Once again, turn to the gospel according to Luke. The good doctor is writing to us an orderly account, including gathering information from eyewitnesses of the ministry and the work of Jesus. It is not a biography of Jesus' life, as we would consider biographies, but points us to the work of Jesus on the cross. And the account, uh, regardless of what people may say, is not a legend of folklore. It's written in such a way with, with really... Uh, well-written Greek in chapter 1 that Luke is notifying us that it really happened this way. And if we've already seen uh, as Dr. Luke opens up this book with the birth announcements of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus, and in both of these announcements, the angel Gabriel announces the purposes of both of these men. John the Baptist will come. He will come in the power of Elijah, call people to repentance as he prepares the way of the Lord. Jesus, on the other hand, was called Son of the Most High, who will be given the throne of his father David and will reign and rule over an eternal kingdom. The angel Gabriel told Mary that she will conceive this virgin girl because the Holy Spirit will come upon her and the, and the power of the Most High will overshadow to her. And Gabriel tells her that when she gives birth to this baby Jesus, he'll be called Holy, the Son of God. So you have the Son of the Most High and the Son of God. We're told in the first few chapters that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant and saw last week that he is the true and better Adam, unlike the first Adam who failed and rebelled and didn't obey the covenant God made with him. Jesus, on the other hand, is the perfect son. He brings redemption. Adam's rebellion brought sin and brokenness and death. Jesus brought life, redemption, and salvation. We said last week that Luke has been stressing not only the deity of Christ, but what's important is the sonship of Christ. Beginning with the announcement of the angels, then we saw in chapter 2, uh, as early as, as 12 years old, Jesus is in the temple, left behind at 12. His mother and father, stepfather, finds him at the temple, and he tells them, did you not know that I must be about my father's house? There's that sonship. And then at the baptism, we see Jesus, by the way, in full immersion because he was in the water and came up out of the water for my Presbyterian friends. The Holy Spirit descended. The, the skies was ripped open, not so God could see us, but that we know that it is us that needs access to him. The Holy Spirit descends on him, bodily form like a dove, and a voice from heaven speaks. It's God the Father, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then last week we looked at the genealogy. We said that Luke traced Jesus from, from Jesus' birth down to Adam, the son of God, chapter 3, verse 38. We said in Matthew's gospel uh, account, his genealogy goes far back as Abraham and stops there. He's the patriarch of the Jewish people. He's writing to a Jewish audience. Both Luke and Matthew in their genealogy shows that Jesus is the ancestor to Abraham because of the covenant God made with him, and David because of the covenant that God made with him. But Luke continues past Adam, excuse me, past Abraham and ends with Adam to show us that he's the Messiah of all people. That's why the, the, the series is called Mission to the World, tracing the genealogy beyond, uh, beyond Abraham to Adam encompasses the entire human race. And now in chapter 3, verse 38, where we ended off last week, with the words 
the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God, ringing in the ears of us and the listeners and the readers, Luke launches into this account of Jesus' temptation. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Simple outline. We'll look at the context of the setting. Uh, and then we'll, we'll look at the temptation. We'll spend most of our time there. And then we'll finish up with the departure. We'll make some points of, of application. So, before we get into the setting, we need to understand the context. As I said, Luke puts the genealogy of Jesus that ended with Adam, the son of God, between his baptism earlier and now the divine, you know, the endorsement of God speaking, genealogy, and then the temptation to show us, again, that the entire human race needs to be redeemed, everyone. In order to be made right with God, in order to have forgiveness of sins, in order to have the imputation of someone's righteousness that is required, which is Jesus, is only if another Adam, a second Adam, comes and does what the first Adam failed to do. There is the temptation of the Garden of Eden. We read last week in Romans, just to remind you, chapter 5, verse 12. I won't read all the verses 12 through 18, but I want to read some. Verse Chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's what we're talking about, the first Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through what man? Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 18. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, we're in Adam, all died, all are condemned. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Those who are in Adam or those who are in, God, in Christ. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made what? Righteous. The Bible teaches God in his Wisdom and creative ability creates Adam out of the dust of the ground, and it is through his disobedience and the covenant that God made with them, death enters the world, sin enters the world, and affects everyone. In contrast, life comes through obedience of the second and last Adam. His name is Jesus Christ. So you need to understand, in order for a holy God to reconcile sinners to himself, Jesus had to become the second Adam, the true and better son, who, like us, yet without sin, who would obey God completely and perfectly and, 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 and succeed where Adam failed as our representative. That, that's the context. That's why Luke puts it in right where that is. Speaks from heaven, the son of God, genealogy, the son of Adam and the son Jesus, and then the son of Adam, and then the temptation. That's the context. Okay? But according to verses 1 and 2, we learn a little bit of the setting. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Luke will pick up that theme a lot, speaking about the Holy Spirit's work in the life of Jesus, both in Luke and in Acts. He wrote both books. Often the, 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 the idea of the wilderness or the desert is a place where there is demonic activity, a place that is barren, a thirsty, a wasteless land. Waterless land. Sometimes it's mentioned as a place of refuge, but many times it's this, it's this place of, of barrenness. But clearly what Luke is teaching us and showing us here is that Jesus is at, 
is in the center of God's will. He's being led by the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Let that sink in for a minute. Let that sink in for a minute. At the center of God's will and God's good providence, while God's working things out, Jesus comes face to face with the devil. Trials and temptations many times comes when we are exactly doing what God wants us and has called us to do. Sometimes, if we're honest, we bring temptations, we bring disasters on our own lives when we disobey, right? Cause the, cause the, the temptation, cause the disaster ourselves. Don't, don't be thinking about the person sitting next to you, Okay? When we make bad decisions, we want to do things our own way. Oftentimes, though, we are in the center of God's will. We're obeying God's law. We're obeying God's will for our lives. We're doing what God has called us to do, and that's when the enemy comes and wants us to to disobey God, wants us to stop intimately walking with Jesus. First thing I want us to see, he's in the center of what God has for his life. Temptations and trials come. Next is the contrast between Adam and the second Adam, Jesus. Adam is tempted. We see in Genesis 1 through 3, Genesis 3, Adam is tempted once, disobeys, and God curses the man, the woman, and the enemy, the serpent himself. Jesus, in contrast, is tempted not once, not twice, and even, I think, more than three times, we'll see in a minute, and passes each and every test. Jesus, in contrast to Adam, lived perfectly and sinlessly in a sinful fallen world. Adam lived in a sinless world and by his sinful action filled it with sin. Adam had plenty. Every tree, every of the garden, he was for him. He didn't have to fast while Jesus was denying himself food, suffering lack for 40 days. Adam in paradise, Jesus in the wilderness. Kent Hughes writes, the first Adam fell to the gorgeous serpent in the glories of Eden. And now the second Adam faced Satan's alluring presence amidst the barren desolation, end quote. Also, I want you to notice in our text that Jesus is in the wilderness fasting for how many days? Forty. Does that sound familiar? Forty years? Remember 40 years? The wilderness was the place of testing Israel's covenant loyalty to their God. Wandering for 40 years. It was there that generation continually questioned the provision of God, the presence of God, the goodness of God, the care of God. They rebelled against his leadership and they played with idolatry. And just as the children of Israel attested, so also Jesus is there under divine direction and his loyalty to his father is now put to the test. There he would do what God's people had failed to do, live in obedience to God. The parallel is clear. I mean, Jesus, when he rebukes the enemy, he will come, he will take the scripture out of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the the wandering experience. Jesus is tempted by hunger, like Israel while they were in the wilderness, Exodus 16. Jesus is tempted to worship something other than God. We saw that while they were, uh, uh, like Israel, we saw that as well in the Exodus. Jesus is tempted to put God to the test, Israel too. That's why Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 8, God, Jesus going back to those days. So we see this, 
we see this setting uh, of not only of the first and the second Adam, but the first Israel and now the true and better Israel, the devout, obedient son. That's why Jesus is qualified then to save not only the nation, but all humanity. And it's interesting to note, if you, if you like to take notes on different words, the word for temptation, parasmas, could be translated either tempt or test. And I think that's appropriate because what Satan wanted to use and what Satan tried to do and to tempt Jesus was to sin and to rebel against his divine commission. God used it, though, to strengthen and prepare Jesus for his ministry. You know, whenever we talk about Satan, there are two extremes. The one extreme is that he doesn't exist anymore. Reminds me of of uh, Keith Green's song, No One Believes in Me Anymore. Some of you may be showing my age, but that was an old song back in the day. And people say, you know what? He's just dreaming. This is a myth. This is, this is legend. You don't really believe that there's a devil. You don't really believe that there is Satan and his demons. Really? Well, well Jesus did. The eternal Son of God did. And this other extreme is that we see everything is the work of the enemy, Right? He causes everything. He causes us to sin all the time. And the, the former, that, that Satan doesn't exist, denies the authority, denies the validity of God's word and the ministry of Jesus himself. But if we blame him for everything, it denies our responsibility. It puts the blame on someone else. There needs to be a balance. What you have before you in Luke's gospel account is a historical occurrence where there's an intentional and deadly intense battle against the devil. And he uses both the natural and the supernatural means to mislead, to tap and mislead, to draw away the incarnate Son of God from his salvific mission to the world, his saving mission for all mankind. You know, Scripture speaks of Satan as, as a, in personal pronouns, we and I, his demons, it's clear. His job is to frighten Christians. His job is to deceive, steal, kill, and destroy, John tells us. His weapons, if I could take just a side note here, Satan's weapon is lying. He's a liar from the beginning. He doesn't hold to the truth. Satan is not all-powerful, all-knowing, always omniscient, always omnipresent everywhere. And one of the greatest lies of the enemy is that we have this battle going on between us and him. It's not about power. It's about truth, standing on the truth. Dr. Neil Anderson was right when he said it's not a power encounter but a truth encounter. The apostle Peter was right when he said in chapter 1, verse 5, be sober-minded, be watchful, pay attention. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What he's saying is you need a battle mind. You need to focus on the truth of God's word, resting in his love and sovereignty. Therefore, prepare your mind for action with the word of God. That's what Jesus does here in this text. Lastly, I want you to see something else in this setting before we move on. Jesus was being tempted for 40 days. And if you read the other gospel accounts... I don't think this was just three tests. I think this was the end of the testing. I think Jesus was tempted throughout his time there. But notice what it says. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. 40 minutes would be all I'd last. Maybe 40 hours. 40 days. Jesus is at the extreme 
of any kind of physical limitations, endurance, it would probably kill some of us. 40 days, only water, right? He's at a critical condition. So the setting is set. The drama is being played out. It's opened. It, 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 you, could, you, could, you could feel the tense, tensity of, of this whole thing. The first Adam, also known as the son of God, tempted by Satan, chose not to obey. Israel, also known as God's son, was tested in the wilderness, didn't obey, descended into sinful grumbling and to, and to idolatry. They failed to trust God's promises. Now will the second Adam succeed? Will he succeed where the first one failed, where the true and better Israel, the one, the first Israel who rebelled? Will Satan be able to disrupt and, and take Jesus off the mission, his redemptive plan to create in himself a people who will love and worship him, will be forgiven of their sins? What's going to happen? Well, we'll see the temptation. Let's see what happens. Three things in the temptation. All of it to, to entice Jesus Draw him away to abandon his dependency upon God by trusting in God's provision, God's power, and God's protection. Look with me at the first one, verse 3. The enemy questions the provision and goodness of God. The devil says to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, in my opinion, the, the question here, if you are the Son of God, is not a question meant to inquire whether Jesus believed that he was or not. If you are the Son of God, do you have doubt about that? He, God just spoke to him from heaven, right? The word if can be translated, or if you are, can be translated because or since. I think what's happening here is more of a mockery. Since or because you are in fact the exalted son of God, should you be suffering like this, Jesus? It's a temptation for Jesus, the son of God, to question God's love, God's goodness, and the provision of God the Father. Like Abraham promised, you're going to have a son. Hang in there. No, you know what? I waited long enough. Provision hasn't come. Let me, let, let me sleep with my, my servant girl, Hagar. Gives birth to his son, enemy of God. For all, you know, forever almost. You know, for a long time, still today. Here we see the temptation for Jesus to take into his own hands the provisions that he needs and not trust in his father for the provisions for what he needs. Fasting, if, you, if, you, if you've done any fasting before, I have. It's supposed to drive us what? To God. To wait upon the Lord, to focus on him. The enemy used it to tempt him not to wait, not to focus, not to rely upon God. As if the enemy is saying to God, excuse me, saying to Jesus, listen, the father led you out here in the middle of nowhere, and now you're hungry? Does he really care about you? If he loved you, he would, he would have this big meal set out here for you. He knows your condition. Why isn't he doing anything about it? Turn the bread into turn the stone into bread. You could do it. In just a couple of months, you're going to feed thousands with just a couple of fish and, a, and loaves of bread. He's tempting Jesus to question the provision and the goodness of God. You know, back in the Garden of Eden, the enemy Satan comes, the serpent comes, and asks the similar question of Eve. You know what he says? Do you mean to tell me that God told you? 
You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. That's not what God said. That's not what God says. The enemy wants to put in her mind, in our minds, the thought, God doesn't care. He's not good. He's not caring. He's not generous. He's unreasonable. Think about that. The devil is suggesting that perhaps God has abandoned in Jesus, abandoned in you, and he better look out for yourself. Nobody could look out better, better for you than you. That's the temptation. So Christ was tempted to provide his own needs apart from the will of the Father. He came to do what? The will of God. And here's the bottom line. Satan was tempting him and often us to be impatient to get ahead of God, to get ahead of his agenda by meeting our own needs in our own way rather than waiting on God for his provision according to his words. Family, how much trouble do we get into or how much trouble can we avoid by sub not submitting to this temptation? How much destructive relationships have we gotten into? How much fire do we play with? Because we do not trust God's provision according to God's providence, his timing, and his word. But we take matters into our own hands. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now notice, man shall not live. Jesus is speaking in his full humanity, right? Jesus did not resist the temptation of Satan simply by the superior power of his deity, fully God and fully man, I get that. But in the weakness of his humanity, man shall not live. That's, that's hope for us. That's hope for us. That by the grace of God, we too have the ability to resist the enemy. Hebrew tells us, because he himself, Jesus himself, was, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And God quotes Deuteronomy. The Lord Jesus quotes Deuteronomy's word. The word of God to God's people when they were wandering in the, in, in the, in the wilderness. And the rest of Deuteronomy, the, the rest of the verse, not only does it say, man shall not live by bread alone. Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, picks it up. But what? By every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus lived not by bread alone, but by the word of God. God's word must take precedent and how we go about getting what we need. Trusting God. Working for our good by believing in the word. Resting on God's sustenance. Resting on the word. Resting on provision his way. Jesus was famished. He knew he was the son of God. And he could meet his hunger at any time. But he was an obedient son. Knew the word. And the word for Jesus was, the, was, was his meat and his drink. The provision. Next we see the power. This temptation has to do with power or authority. The devil takes Jesus to the kingdoms of the world and he says, it's all yours, just bow down and worship me. Whether it was a literal rapture or a flashing screen, you know, in front of Jesus' eyes, what a vision, we don't know. But one thing we know about this temptation, Jesus was being tempted to bypass the cross, the suffering to receive the power and authority at that moment right now. All the, the fortunes of the world, military power, cultural accomplishment, this great civilization of Rome, the Roman Empire, all the splendor that comes with it can be yours. And notice Jesus doesn't say, you have no authority. You can't do that. You see, once sin entered the world in Genesis 3, 
Satan gains some power over the kingdom of men. Jesus will call him in John's gospel, the gospel according to John, the ruler or prince of this world. Paul calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air in Ephesians, the God of this age in 2 Corinthians. But Satan's rule, listen carefully, over the world is not only just for a season, it's also by God's permission, never his own possession. It was and still is and will always be under God's sovereign control. Therefore, the offer is an exaggeration mixed with truth and error. But God's will is that the way Jesus will receive his ultimate power, okay, is through humility. It's through humility. It'll come through scourging. It'll come through spitting. It'll come through a bloody crucifix. That's why Philippians tells us, found in a form, a human form, he humbled himself, Jesus, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly, mega, exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That's how Jesus will have all authority and the kingdoms will be given to him. Satan was tempting Jesus to seize the crown without suffering the cross. Bypass Golgotha and go straight to glory. Dr. David Garland, New Testament scholar. It is a temptation to accelerate, accelerate the access to power by bypassing the path of suffering and service to achieve power by, for power's sake, to receive, receive power for power's sake, giving no thought to justice, to adopt Satan, satanic means of attaining power by exploiting dominating and crushing others, end quote. That's so true. Satan comes along and says, you know what? You can have all authority, exousia, power, authority, rule and reign, control, and you can have all the glory. So notice that? All the praise and honor and the worth and the value that go along with it. Just bow your knee to me. And the truth is we all face that battle. We all face that temptation. We're all trying to live for something. We're all trying to seek and, and to cling to something or someone else for a sense of glory, worth and value, significance, meaning. We're enslaved by anything that we place our life in or put our life in that is more central, more significant, more substantial, and more important than God himself. Jerry Bridges writes this. Sometimes we look to other things to satisfy and fulfill us, to save us. These functional saviors can be any object of dependence we embrace that is in God. They become the source of our identity, security, and significance because we hold an idolatrous affection for them in our hearts. They preoccupy our minds and consume our time, consume our resources. They make us feel good and somehow even make us feel righteous. Whether we realize it or not, they control us and we worship them, end quote. Putting things carved or otherwise in the place that God alone should occupy is what the Bible calls idolatry. And worship of those things is exactly what Israel did. Out in the wilderness, they become idolaters. And the Lord's anger growing against them. He's a jealous God. And the result was tragic. Even when they got into the promised land, still struggling and playing and toying with idolatry. Breaking the first and second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment, the second commandment alike. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of them. You shall not bow down to them and serve them. That's what Satan wants me to do. You know, as Martin Luther, a great reformer, 
who pointed out that we break the third through the fifth commandment because we break the first two. Really what it is. If you keep the first two, if you love the Lord thy God and, and you don't worship other things, you won't break any of the other commandments. We commit adultery. We commit murder and steal and lie and cheat and dishonor our parents because we created this functional savior, this idol. Something we look to in the place of God to find love, to find security. Rest, contentment, a sense of importance, our identity in something else than God. Romans 1 tells us that idolatry is when we exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. That could be anything. It could be your morality. It could be your goodness. It could be your money. It could be, it could be relationships. It could be kids, grandkids. False gods look to take your life. The real God gave his life for you. That's the truth. The offer is to escape hardship and pain, but in the end, all it does is enslave him, slave us. And I will tell you, family, to have victory in your life, Calvin says that our hearts are idol factories. We have to identify the idol, tear it off the altar of our souls, and reorient our life, our heart, our affections around the true God. His name is Jesus, who revealed himself in the word. Jesus answered him again, verse 8. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Again, from Deuteronomy. And again, the parallel between Jesus and Adam are remarkable. Both had a choice between obedience to God or the devil's offer to another path to take them to glory. But the contrast, too, is remarkable. For Adam's disobedience, excuse me, for Adam's obedience, there would have been blessing, an incredible blessing upon the earth. And yet for Jesus' obedience, there is an unimaginable suffering on the cross. Before we move on from here, let me, let me just say one other thing. As I was studying, I was thinking, it's not just God's word, it is, but it's the gospel. Paul calls it a first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to have victory over idolatry, over Satan's lies and temptation of idolatry, we have to and we must be so enhammered and embrace the gospel. That Jesus and the gospel has become more precious, listen, more beautiful to our souls, more beautiful to our imagination, more attractive to our hearts than the idol. Pressing in the truth of the gospel, of the work of Jesus, and continually asking our hearts the same question over and over again. What is operating right now in the place of the gospel? What functional savior has taken the place of the beauty of Christ? Lastly, we see protection. Now, this last temptation, Satan must have got really tired of hearing Jesus say, it is written, it is written, it is written. He had to be thinking, this guy is a walking Bible. If I'm going to get him to fall, trip him up, cause him to sin, I got to use the Bible too. So he decides to quote his own Bible verses in this climatic last temptation. Verse 9, he takes him to Jerusalem set him on the pinnacle of the temple and says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, I know my Bible, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, verse 11, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. This final temptation has to do with God's protection of Christ. This just goes to show you and I that Satan knows his Bible. I, 
probably better than everybody in this room. And what Satan offered was extraordinary. It takes Jesus to the, to the apex or, the, or, or maybe the roof of the temple, the, the, the royal portico, which is, which is high up. I think it's somewhere like 450 feet above the Kindred Valley. Grand height. And he says to Jesus, throw yourself on God's mercy. Throw yourself into God's hands. Because the psalmist said in Psalm 91, you won't get hurt. The Father will protect his Messiah. In fact, you know, he didn't say this, but you could think, you know, the temple, and you read the Old Testament, is where God's protection is, is particularly effective. It's, it's where his, his shelter is, his refuge is called, a fortress. His manifestation, his panim, his face in the temple. And the issue is not that he quoted scripture. He, he quoted scripture just fine. Satan did. But he didn't interpret the scripture properly. He did not interpret the scripture properly. The first rule is that scripture interprets scripture, which means the Holy Spirit is his own interpreter. You can't take one portion of scripture and pit it against another passage of scripture. Unfortunately, Satan is still using scripture to promote his agenda, like the name it and claim it, the, 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 the word of faith heresy and teachers that are out there. It is twisting scripture to suit your own sinful and selfish purposes. Jesus corrects the devil. It's like, yeah, you know what? You, you, you quoted scriptures, all that's good, but your quotation is inaccurate. Your interpretation is wrong. It conflicts with other parts of scripture. If I jump from this pinnacle, I'll be putting the Father to the test, and that is not permissible for me. I don't have to jump into air knowing that the angels would catch me because my Father already said so. If I don't need to test him, Jesus says in verse 12, it is written, shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, Deuteronomy. The test God, be, the test God is basically questioning if God will keep his word. To test God is to impugn his character, his power, his faithfulness to fulfill all his promises. Israel did it. Adam and Eve did it. The Israelites tested, they complained in the wilderness about his provision. And, and Moses, even when Moses struck the rock and brought out water for them. It says in Exodus 17, he called the place Massa or Meribah and Meribah. This is when, when God provided water through Moses, through the rock by Moses. Because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Like, he's, does, does he know what's going on? Does he really care? And on that day, the Israelites doubted God's provision. They tested him and they complained. And their disgraceful attitude, their faithlessness, brought action upon them. The word of God is clear. We are not to attempt to force God to act when we want him to act. True worshipers of the living God do not seek to dictate to him how he must fulfill his promises. And in every temptation that you see here, Jesus Christ relies what? On the word of God. The Holy Scriptures. He not only relies on the Scriptures, but he trusts the Scriptures. He believes the Bible applies in these temptations because he believes in the authority and the inspiration, inspiration God breathed of the Scriptures. He does not uh, go back and forth. He does not object. He stands on the Word of God. What I think needs to be said here as well is knowing your Bible is not enough. If Satan can twist the Scripture against or wants to or tries to 
twist the scripture against the eternal son of God, you can be certain that he will try to twist scripture to get you and I not to trust him. Or, even worse, maybe, even to get you to believe something that God has never, ever promised. Watch this. Put your hand on your head like that. Ball spots, I call you gone. Ricky and I were going to bring Chris up. He's crazy. He's crazy. He's not only demonic. That's Kenneth Copeland, by the way, if you don't know. Name and claim it. That's, that, that's not even make-believe. They run around telling you things that God never said. That's the problem. The hermeneutics, what they call hermeneutics, the how to interpret Scripture, they, they don't get it. It's not only to get us, listen, not to trust God, but to walk around believing that God said something that he never said. We got to be careful. We got to be careful. The departure. Look at me at the last verse. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until the opportune time. And it came during the cross. You remember the last week of Christ, Satan came and what did he do? He got into and, and filled Judas to work toward the betrayal. Peter, denial of Christ. Remember what Jesus said? Satan wants to sift you. The Bible says in James, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Temptation and attacks for us will not end until we leave this place and go to glory. We have a new body, a new heavens, and a new earth, and all sin will be wiped away. All temptation will be gone. But until that time, we are being tempted. And we have to be careful. We must not succumb to put our physical desires ahead of our obedience to Christ. We need to be careful that we are not... Uh, tempted to seek earthly glory rather than rest in the gospel, suffer for the cause of Christ. We are tempted at times to take the easy way out, to get what we want outside the known will of God. And we, we must realize that when we question God's love, God's care for us, we must do what Jesus did, not test the Lord, but rest in the word of God. Jesus knew his Bible and faced temptations in the weakness of his humanity by resisting the devil through what? The word of the spirit, the sword of the spirit, excuse me, Ephesians 6. Resisting temptation by the power of God's word. Psalm 119, right? I, I, I store your word in my heart so that I may not sin against thee. If we want to stand firm against the devil, we do, and we stand on the word of God. But that's not the main point, I don't think, of the passage. Jesus did not stand in the midst of this battle, in the midst of this, this 40-day fasting battle, in the middle of, of the wilderness, primarily to be our example. I'm, I did this so you could know what to do. That's there, but that's not the primary purpose. He was there as the new and the better and obedient Adam. He was there as the new and better and obedient Israel. He was there as the Savior. He stood up against his enemy. He stood up against our enemy in the desert and was tempted in our place. The sun stands in our place to defeat the temptations and often that often defeats us. 
where the other sons of God, Adam and Israel, would not trust the word of the Lord, but gave into this unholy temptation. Jesus was faithful. And listen, by virtue of his faithful life, of his sacrificial death, we are both free from the power and the penalty of sin, Romans 6. His triumph in the desert, in the wilderness, becomes ours, so we are no longer slaves to sin, unable to resist temptation. We fight against the attraction of sin by, by running to Jesus, by taking refuge in the gospel, knowing that the one who fought the tempter on our behalf is with us to help us in our time of need. Again, Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect, listen, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then, let us therefore, since he's gone through it, he's been tempted, he knows the deal. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may, find, may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. There's mercy, there's grace in the gospel. That day in the wilderness... That day in the wilderness, Jesus did not jump from the temple. He did not jump from the temple mount or, or the portico to test whether or not the Father would catch him. But there came a day that Jesus would jump, if you would, into the hands of God. And it was on Good Friday. When after he was beaten and brutally crucified on a Roman cross, and after darkness came over the whole land, as Jesus bore the wrath that we deserve, he cried out, it is finished. Remember? His obedient life, the resisting of the enemy and all the sin and evil, and his substitutionary death secured salvation, forgiveness of sins, and the righteousness needed to stand before a holy God. And then Jesus says, Father... Into your hands, I commit my spirit. In obedience and trust, not, not a reckless act of testing, Jesus jumped into the hand of his loving Father so that you can also. So in the temptation, we can find, or, or, or so when we are tempted, we can and we must run and flee to Christ. He conquered our enemy. He did this so that we could have the grace and the mercy when we fall, he's our mediator. He stands as our high priest, offering both the sacrifice and the righteousness that we so desperately need. As the band comes up, what are you tempted with today? Are, 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 you, are, you, are you unsure of God's love? Do, do you want to take matters into your own hands, knowing that it's outside the will of God? Are, 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 do, do we want to not trust in God's provision? Are we, are we trying to get glory somewhere else? That we matter? That God loves us? Now's the time as we sing this next song to trust what God has said. If you're here, you never trusted Christ. Today's the day. Rely upon him. Trust him. Trust Jesus' death on the cross for your sin and resurrection from the dead. But I know I, we're all walking this life together. We're all tempted in different ways. Put a curtain around your soul, your heart. Talk to the Lord. Where is God speaking to you about in this, in this temptation? Where you can stand on God's word, receive his forgiveness and grace and mercy and his love. He's provided everything we need. Amen? Amen. Let us pray together.
And Father, now in the quietness of this time, we acknowledge that like Adam, like Israel, we, we have failed and we have sinned. And that our only hope, and it is a sure hope, is Jesus Christ's perfect life. He resisted every way, every chance, in every circumstance, and had victory over evil, sin, and even death with his resurrection. So, Father, we run to the Lord Jesus. We cling to him and him alone. And, Father, we know this to be true. Because your word tells us it is. It reveals to us the work of Jesus on our behalf and explains to us, God, that when we are under the headship of King Jesus, we are forgiven, we have received righteousness, we are yours, we are loved, we are accepted, and we are eternally secure. We love you, and we pray, God, as we sing this song, Work in our hearts so that we can see the beauty and the glory of Jesus nowhere else. We pray this in his name. Amen.